Oh man, you guys can do better than that. They just killed that song. Like, come on, give it up for them. That was so fun. That made me wish I had long hair so I could like sling it around during that song. Whatever you do with long hair and music like that. But uh, to me, that is the perfect song to, f to start today. Now, um, who knows what band that's from? Anybody know? Muse. Somebody knew it over there. The band's name is Muse. And it's perfect to get this day going about how our appetites work. Because that is the theme song of your appetites. Did you know that? I want it now. I'm losing control. I want it. Get it to me. I'll do anything to get it. Without it, I'm, I'm not feeling the same. When we, and what's interesting is when we talk about appetites, most of us, what we think about is food and hunger, right? That's like, oh, you're talking about appetites. It's food and hunger. But there's a lot of appetites out there. There's food and there's sex. And I'm sure there's others. But, that, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, Looking through the lens of a guy, right? Because I've been one my whole life. Um, if you women that are here going, man, I just wish I could figure guys out. We're really simple. We have three appetites. And we have three basic needs. It's food, sex, and sleep. You give us those three things, we're pretty happy on average. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, mostly. Uh, God, has, um, God has really designed all of us it really as a big bundle of appetites and desires. It really is um, what we're kind of made up of. Not all, but those really kind of uh, drive us. Those appetites, they include security. They include um, an appetite for love, an appetite to be respected, an appetite to be cherished and feel successful, to win, um, to be envied. We have all sorts of appetites um, and God designed us with them. And here's the thing about our appetites. They are way more powerful than we think. They hold way more sway over our lives than we realize. And so before we jump into the meat of today, let me pray for us. Um, Lord, I thank you that you are here right now. And I thank you that whether um, everyone in this room knows you or not, you have a message for every single one in this room. And so, Lord, I pray that right now you would open our hearts and our minds to your truth and to your voice. God, if there's any distractions that we brought in here with us, um, I pray that you would help us to just set those down. If there's any walls that have been put up um, to keep you out, I pray that you would just break those down in the next few moments that we might hear your voice and hear your truth. Um, maybe for the first time, God, I pray that you would just speak loud and clear and, and tell each one of us individually exactly what we need to hear today as we open up your word in your holy name. Amen. So you need to know that the message today is adapted from a message I heard six years ago, actually at a conference I went to. A guy was speaking by the name of Andy Stanley. He's a pastor at a big church in Atlanta. And the message impacted me so much, I have not forgotten it for six years. In fact, I could probably give this message without even really looking at my notes a whole lot because I remember it so clearly. Um, and to be honest with you, I have held on to it for six years waiting for the right moment. I've just been waiting for a day where we had a day where we could kind of use this and, and, and speak this message. And so today's that day, so I'm glad you're here. Um, but, but you need to know um, a little bit about appetites. And so I want to give you uh, a couple of thoughts on appetites in general. Um, by nature, um, what you need to know about your appetites is appetites are never fully and finally satisfied, um, ever. Your appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. And that tension uh, never goes away our entire life, no matter how big your salary is, no matter how good your last meal was, um, no matter um, what accomplishments you have at work, um, after you get the award, three days later, the award is on the shelf and you're looking for more. How many times have you finished a meal and you have said, I can't eat another thing, and then where are you at three hours later? Refrigerator, right? You're like, oh, I'm a little hungry, a little snack. Um, you know, we somehow think, 
on average, we somehow think that there's someone out there, there's some reward, some recognition that will finally fulfill our appetite for more. And I chuckle sometimes when people are telling me about um, buying a new home and, and they just say, hey man, this is our forever home. Like this has everything. We will never want another home again because this one has it all. And I just laugh a little bit inside because I'm like, well, let's talk in five years. Because that's usually not what people are saying five years later after they buy their forever home. There's always something that they want to expand, do, or move to, or get to um, almost every time. None of our appetites are ever fully and finally satisfied. There's always, always going to be tension in this area. Now, there's a second thing you need to know about your appetites. Your appetite will always whisper now and never whisper later. Your appetites will always whisper now. They will never whisper later, just like the song. I mean, that's a great theme song. I want it now. Our appetites always say now. They never say later, which gets me to this truth about appetites, and that is this. Your appetites will either rule you or be ruled by you. You will either rule them or they will rule you, and there really is not much in between. Now, appetites in and of themselves aren't bad. They are, they're never bad. They're kind of neutral. But where they become negative is, is that they, they have a tendency to control us. They have a tendency to take over. And um, your response to your appetites, your response to uh, your ability to, to, to manage the tension that your appetites create really determine the direction of your career, your life, your relationships, your family, and ultimately your legacy. And um, I want to center this talk around the story of two brothers in Scripture. And I just kind of want to bring this whole idea of appetites up through the story of Jacob and Esau. And I just want to know how many of you have ever heard of the names Jacob and Esau in the Bible? Just raise your hand. Okay, we got about a third. Maybe half of you have heard of Jacob and Esau. Um, they are the sons of Isaac who is the son of Abraham. Now, most people have heard uh, the name Abraham coming from Scripture. Um, in fact, it's really bizarre. Three, actual three world religions all um, make their heritage. They say their heritage comes down the line from Abraham. So this is a story about two of his grandsons. And there's a twist in the story. The twist in the story is that they are twins. Esau, born first, and about five, seven minutes later, probably on average, um, well, you know, if you look at, at twins when they're born, um, comes Jacob. So Esau uh, is the older brother, Jacob is the younger brother, which is a huge deal. Because in this story, you really have this dynamic that we don't have in our culture today that we need to talk about because it existed back in ancient, ancient Middle Eastern culture. And that is this whole idea of birthright. The whole story that we're about to talk to talk about is really centered around birthright. Now, let me explain the concept of birthright in ancient Middle Eastern culture. The oldest son was given by his father the birthright. Extraordinarily valuable. It has three components to the birthright. First of all, if you are the oldest, you get the birthright. You, uh, on the financial side, you will get two to three, sometimes four times as much as every other sibling. Like you get two to three times and everybody else splits the rest. So automatically, um, you, when it comes to reading the will, you're going to be the happiest and you're going to be the richest immediately like that. The second component of a birthright is you were given authority over the rest of the family. 
you become the judge of the family. There is no arguing among family members. Basically, if there's a dispute, they come sit at your feet and they tell you what's going on and whatever you decide is how it goes. No one can complain or question your authority. You become the judge of the family. The third perk to the birthright is the blessing of God. That is, if you had the birthright, God was almost forced to bless you. And there's just this concept of if, if you're the firstborn and you have the birthright, God is going to give you an extra blessing that he will withhold and not give to any other person in the family. So the birthright is this incredibly valuable um, uh, thing in, in the Old Testament. It is prized. It is cherished. It meant power and money and blessing. So in this story, you have Jacob. He's the younger brother. Came out five to seven minutes later. He's a dreamer. He's a schemer. Um, it's, he's, as you read, he's kind of a mama's boy. He likes to stay inside. He's an incredibly good cook, Scripture tells us. And then you've got Esau. Esau is the oldest. Um, he's like a man's man. He's a hunter. Um, he's, he's like an outdoorsy, fire-in-his-eyes kind of guy. It says that he's incredibly hairy. So, like, I'm from the line of Esau. Um, you know, he, like, he, he, was, he was always outside bringing food back for the family to eat. He was an incredible hunter. And so that's the way the two of them are. As they get older, here's the story, Genesis 25, verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Now, you have to pause here, and you have to talk about the dynamics of brothers. How many of you have a brother? Um, yep, older or younger. How many of you have a brother? Okay, about a third of you in the room have a brother. Um, here's what you need to know about brothers. I have one. His name is Keith. He's 14 months younger than me. He actually did announcements earlier in the service. Um, uh, and so, so here's what you need to know about brothers in case you never had one. Um, the older brother rarely, 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 rarely ever needs the younger brother. Okay, that's just the way it is. The older brother never needs the younger brother. In fact, the older brother is usually annoyed by the younger brother. Speaking from experience, very annoying. Sometimes for decades of his life, the younger brother is annoying. Um, not mine, but other people's. Um, but uh, so the younger brother usually just annoys the brother. Younger brother, uh, the older brother. Younger brother always wants something from the older brother. Now if you think about it in today's day and age, the younger brother always wants the car, wants the room, wants the clothes, wants the shoes, wants the, the Xbox controller, wants everything from the older brother. And older brothers rarely ever need or want anything from younger brothers. But when they do, the smarter younger brother, when the older brother needs something, goes, <laughs> hit the pause button. Because this never happens. Because now I have the power. He wants something from me. And so the key is if you're the younger brother and your older brother wants something, you don't rush the moment. You kind of relish the moment because you're like, this is rare and I'm going to just love every minute of that because... The, younger brother, the older brother actually needs the younger. So here's the dynamic between Jacob and Esau. Esau never needs anything from, uh, yeah, Esau never needs anything from Jacob, but suddenly Jacob finds himself in a position where he says, I have the power, and then this is what happens. He takes advantage of it. Genesis 25, 31, Esau says, I need food, I'm famished. This is what Jacob replies, first, sell me your birthright. How about that for taking advantage of the moment? Like, how did he know that this was his moment? The most ridiculous trade proposal in biblical history is right here. A bowl of stew for a birthright. 
Are you kidding me? Like, who would trade a birthright for a bowl of stew? Who would trade their future for something as invaluable as a bowl of stew? Who would throw away their marriage? Who would throw away the respect of their children? Who would throw away their reputation in the community? Who would throw away their influence? Who would throw away their career for a bowl of stew? Who would do that? You know who would do that? You and I would do that for the right bowl of stew wouldn't we? You and I, I would do it for the right bowl of stew. Because appetites are that powerful. Appetites have that much power in our lives. They're never fully and finally satisfied, which is why every single month, every single year, at some point, you're going to be offered a temporary bowl of stew, something that is all about now and, and not later, and you will always be tempted. You will always be tempted to make the trade. You will always be tempted to think about it and mull it over and potentially be willing to give up something very valuable for a bowl of stew. So Esau responds, verse 32, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? And you read this and you go, dude, you might be hungry. In fact, your blood sugar level might even be plummeting. But you are not about to die. That's not how starvation works. Starvation is like this long, drawn-out process. That's not where you're at. But somehow Esau got to the point where his birthright was no good to him compared to a bowl of stew. So now how did he get there? And this is where it's really interesting. There are psychologists and scientists. They've explored, investigated this for years. And let me just tell you, do you know that when an appetite gets blown out of proportion, did you know that something actually happens in your brain? It happens to every one of us. Every one of us who have seen someone at the mall that we shouldn't have contact with, um, we get an idea to accomplish something that we shouldn't accomplish. We had an opportunity that we shouldn't take or we're thinking about doing something that we know we shouldn't do, but we're mulling it over and the appetite becomes larger than life. Scientists say, that there's an actual chemical change in your brain. One of those things that changes is called impact bias. And this is fascinating research. Impact bias takes a simple appetite, hunger, desire to be loved, desire to be respected, to be held. Impact bias magnifies it out of proportion. And then this is what happens. Your brain begins to lie to you. Your brain tells you that if you get this thing, if you get this person, if you accomplish this thing, then you're going to feel a level 8 out of 10 on a scale of 10, when in reality you're going to feel about a 3. It's what impact bias does. Your brains tell you that if you get this thing, if you do this thing, if you make this decision to go against what you know is probably the best thing to do, that it's really going to end up being a seven or eight. It's going to feel great. And it's going to last longer than it actually is. And we all do this. We think, hey, if I could just drive that car, if I could just be with her, if I just went to that website, if I could just have this salary, if I could just have a broader responsibility, if my company could just get to a, a certain level, your brain tells you that it'll be here, but reality will be here. Why does it do that? Because we are terrible predictors of our emotional future. Impact bias says it'll make us this happy, when in reality it'll make us this happy impact bias. The other thing that happens at the same time is a thing called focalism. Focalism. Never heard this word until six years ago, but this takes me back to high school. Focalism focuses our mind on one thing and blots out everything else. 
guys are usually accused of having focalism all the time. But it focuses on one thing, blots out everything else. This is why if you're a guy, speaking from a guy's experience, I've been one my whole life, um, this is why um, there were certain girls in high school that you focused on and they didn't know you then and they don't want to know you now, right? It's like kind of went that way. It kind of went like you were so into them and you knew where they, when they walked around the corner, everything else disappeared. It was just her in slow motion with the hair waving and you knew where she sat, you knew what she wore, you know what she, she did for fun. And guess what? She didn't think about you then. She's still not thinking about you now, but you know everything about her because you were that focused. That's how powerful focalism is. You talk to any guy that's older and he can tell you back in high school, whoever it was that he was focused in on, who he was struggling with focalism. So so here's what happens when these two get together. Impact bias helps us overestimate the feelings of fulfilling an appetite, and focalism helps blur everything else out so that all you see is that. Do you see how that is a recipe for disaster? This is why when a dessert is placed in front of you, put a brownie in front of us, we say, I'll start my diet tomorrow, right? That's kind of what we do. We're like, oh, you know what? I want this now. I'll start tomorrow making better choices. We do that. So Esau, he says, who needs a birthright when I can have a bowl of stew? Like that's literally what's going through his mind. This happens in your brain and in my brain every time an appetite gets blown out of proportion. Verse 33, but Jacob said, he was relentless. Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now it's at this point in the story that like, I wish I could just go back and hit the pause button for these guys. I wish literally that one of us could go back and get in between Jacob and Esau and just go, hey, hey, hold, time out here, just a second. Um, uh, Jacob, listen, man, I know this is your moment and this has never happened before and you're taking full advantage of it, um, but, but just we've got to hit the pause button. Esau, you need to listen to me, Esau, because of what's coming. You need to listen to what I have to say because you, if you take that stew, there's some things that are going to happen to you and to your future that you have no idea about. And, and, and you know, what I would say to Esau is I would say, look, you have some children now, Esau. Um, I know you're famished, but just hang with me. You have children now. Well, you're going to have uh, 12 sons, and these sons are going to have large families. And, and Esau, these families are going to become a nation, and this, they're going to be in slavery for about 400 years, and then they're going to be sent a deliverer named Moses. And, and Esau, you just need to know that when God introduces himself to Moses, he is going to start with, hello, I am God. I am the God of of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That is how he's going to introduce himself to you. But if you take that stew, he's going to introduce himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's if you have the stew, Esau, that's what's going to happen. And then, he goes, then you, could, you could go on, and I want to tell Esau, I'd love to say him, hey, you also need to know, um, you need to go with me 2,000 years from now. This is what's going to happen. God is going to send his son into the world, and he's going to be from your lineage, Esau. His name is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be the savior of the whole world. He's going to gather some people around him. One of them's name is Matthew, and Matthew is going to write a book that goes in this whole uh, story of, of God and this whole story of you. It's going to be called the Bible. It's going to be a bestseller. It's going to be printed in every language on the planet, and there's going to be more copies of this book sold throughout humanity than any other book ever in the history of mankind. And Esau, you need to know that Matthew is going to start his gospel, and he's going to start with the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, and he's going to start with this is the story of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And I know you're hungry, Esau. I know you're hungry, but do you want to trade all that? 
Do you want to trade every bit of that? And then I would just give Esau a little bit of advice, and I would just say, Esau, it would be better for you to die than give that up. It would be better for you to die than give all of that up. But there was no one there to reframe the appetite. There was no one there to stand next to Esau and say, Esau, now just think about this for a second. Just like there's going to be nobody there standing next to you and me. When our appetites rear their ugly heads, and we've got to make a decision. So here's how the story ends, Genesis 25, 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And I just did this this morning. After Genesis chapter 25, there is one chapter in the Bible that talks about Esau. One chapter. And all it does is give you who his kids were and a little bit of his genealogy. And you know who is mentioned throughout the rest of the Bible is Jacob. Because Jacob's 12 sons become the leaders of Israel, the tribes of Israel. Jacob's genealogy leads to Jesus coming into the world. And Jacob is who is introduced. Every time God introduced himself to people on earth, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you realize it was supposed to be Esau? And you know what he gave that up for? A bowl of stew. A bowl of stew. And so here's the deal. This tension will never go away. It'll never go away in your life. It'll never go away in my life. And if you let your appetites dictate your decision-making at some point in the future, you will trade your future for a bowl of stew. You will trade your future for a bowl of stew. Now just think about that for a second. And let me ask you some questions. What's your bowl of stew? What is your bowl of stew? What's that thing right now that you are finding it very, very difficult to refuse or ignore? What is that thing that right now you are talking yourself into and you are talking other people into that you know you probably shouldn't do, but you know you're trying to get something that you probably shouldn't get the way you're trying to get it? What's hard to say no in your life to that you know is promising more than it's ever going to deliver? What is it that you're doing that's not illegal, that's not immoral, but you don't want anybody to know about? And I'll just tell you, for some of you, that bowl of stew is a relationship. You are veering into and you're gravitating toward. Um, it'll totally wreck your marriage and the respect that your kids have for you and that story that your grandchildren and your children tell about you. Do you really want to give up all that legacy for someone that's a little bit cuter than who you chose to marry? You're just a victim of focalism, I'll just tell you. Because, guys, she's not as cute as you think she is. And girls, he's not as good looking, as nice of a guy as you think he is. When you're contemplating doing that, impact bias and focalism will make you believe that you're about to get an eight. Rarely, if ever, is it an eight. And I'll tell you, if I were talking to the person that's attracted to you, I would tell them the same thing. I'd just say they're just a, you're just a bowl of stew. Pretty stew, really good-looking stew. Probably yummy, but stew. 
I've always heard this in ministry. All we are is a couple of decisions away. Every one of us are just a couple of decisions away from trading our future for a bowl of stew. And so I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about how we keep from following Esau's example. How do we keep from making decisions that literally will change our legacy for the worse? Before we do that, I want to receive our offering. So um, if you guys can come forward, ushers, and let me just say this. For those of you that are new or you're visiting, let the basket go by. We're excited that you're here. Um, I hope this service is a gift to you, um, and we're just, we're just grateful for you being here. For those of you that call Kensington home, um, this is when we give back to God from what he's blessed us with. And I'll, and I'll just say this to you, um, for those of you that give online, because you might notice that not everybody's putting something in and don't give them like the evil eye, right? Okay. They probably give online. Okay. So let, let the basket go by and just pat them on the back. They probably give online. And for those of you that do, but haven't changed your giving from our Michigan, uh, from Kensington in Michigan to, uh, Orlando here, I'd just like to encourage you and remind you to do that sometime soon. Um, but let me get into, uh, how we keep from following an Esau's footsteps and giving into our appetites. Um, first of all, I'll just say this, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it with your own willpower because your appetites are too powerful. Um, so you need the help that only comes from a relationship with Jesus. And you need to know this, um, and this is kind of some of the nuts and bolts of faith, but when you accept Jesus into your life, when you invite him into your life to forgive you and to be your Lord and Savior, what he says is, I'm going to bring with me my Holy Spirit the power of God, and I'm going to give it to you to dwell inside of your heart. And that spirit is going to give you power to do what you can't do on your own. It's going to give you supernatural power to manage your appetites. And I'll just tell you, if you've never invited Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, maybe today's your day. Maybe you've heard enough, or maybe you realize that your appetites are out of control and you need help. Your help is in Jesus. It's the only place I know of to tell you to go to find the power to manage the appetites that war within you and create this tension. And after you've done that, then there are two steps. Because you can try and do these two steps on your own without a relationship with Jesus and it will, you will fail at it 100% of the time. But once you have the power of Jesus in your heart, there's two things that you need to do, two action steps. The first is reframe your appetites. You reframe your appetites. And so I have an, I have an assignment for you over the next week. I'd love for you to do it today. Um, but I would love for you to take a piece of paper. If you have a journal and you journal, write in your journal. Um, I know that's like guys don't write stuff down very well. And if you have a place you keep notes and stuff, thoughts or whatever, um, your deep thoughts that you have, um, Get out that piece of paper or that journal. I want you to write four words um, at 10 years from now, dot, dot, dot. I just want you to, this is your homework assignment. If you will do this, this will help you write on a piece of paper 10 years from now. And then I want you to write whatever comes to mind. 10 years from now, what do you want to see God do in your life 10 years from now? What do you want to see God do in your marriage 10 years from now? What do you want to see in your career 10 years from now? What do you want to see in your children 10 years from now? In your grandchildren 10 years from now? In your community 10 years from now? In your profession 10 years from now? Take some time and answer the question 10 years from now, what do you want your life to look like? And in doing so, you will begin to reframe your appetites. You will begin to be transformed in your thinking because here is what I know about you because it was true uh, of in, the, in the life of Esau, and that is this. You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through you. 
You have no idea what God wants to accomplish through you. Do you think Esau in that moment was thinking 10 years down the road? Do you think Esau in that moment was thinking about how God would introduce himself for the rest of eternity? Do you think Esau was thinking that one day there would be a savior of the world and that he would come through Esau's line? Esau never had a thought about 10 years from now. He never reframed the appetite. All he knew was, I'm going to die if I don't have a bowl of stew. Romans 12, 2. There's a verse that goes along with reframing the appetite, your appetite. It's this, do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? Here and now thinking. Give in to your appetites. Whatever you think is the right thing to do, do it. Don't worry about the consequences. You can take care of those later. You need it now. You want it now. You need to go get it now. Everybody else is. That's the way appetites speak. You need to transform your thinking. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's how the world operates. But be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, reframe your appetites. Rethink how you see the warring tension inside of your life that wants to have more. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll be able to hear the voice of God. You'll be able to make wise decisions. You'll actually make decisions now that will impact 10 years from now for the better, not for the worse, or not for the I hope it turns out. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, how do you do that? How do you reframe your thinking? The first thing you do is you ask God to help you. If you have Jesus in you, you go, God, help me look down the road and see how my appetites are lying to me. See how my brain is trying to get me to do something. Realize that Satan is a great deceiver, and, uh, and he and sin always promises more than it can ever deliver. Um, you might even have a slogan, and I'll just tell you, for six years, uh, as, I've, as I've heard this message, what I have put into place in my life, you re- uh, you've got to hear this. The, you, know, we, you know, we talk to ourselves all the time. I don't know if you realize that, but you're constantly talking to yourself. Um, but as temptations come across my view, as things come into my life that I realize there's an appetite that's rearing, rearing its ugly head, um, that I've just made it a slogan of mine and just go, it's just a bowl of stew. And I think back to this story. It's just a bowl of stew. Yeah, but she's really pretty and has a good personality. It's just a bowl of stew. Yeah, but it's a, it's a bigger house and your family needs it. It's just a bowl of stew. It's just giving up a little bit of my integrity to get ahead. It's just a bowl of stew. It's just, it's just getting what I want now. I'm going to do the right thing in a few months. But I just want to kind of circumvent God's plan in God's way. It's just a bowl of stew. And just think about Esau. Look at what he gave up. He had no idea. What if you're giving up the same thing and you have no idea? Your appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. So what do you do? You ask God for wisdom. God help me. God, help me to see the reality of what I'm faced with. Help me to see down the road 10 years so that I know if I make this decision what's going to come or what will probably come. And most of us have seen examples of what's to come. We just don't think it'll happen to us. So the first thing you do is you reframe your appetite. The second thing you do is you refrain from giving in. You reframe and then you refrain. I'm hoping that those are so similar you remember them both, okay? Reframe and then you refrain from giving in. James 1.12, happy is the man who doesn't give in and do wrong when he's tempted for afterwards... 
He'll get a reward, his reward, the crown of life that God has promised those who follow him. How do you refrain? With God's help, relying on his promises. And I love this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. One of the lies your brain will tell you is no one's having to deal with this. No one else is tempted like you're tempted. No one else would be able to resist this because, because no one else is facing this. Let me just tell you, this is very clear. Every temptation you face, every one of us face. But God is faithful, and this is a promise here. you got to hang your hat on. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, meaning you do have the opportunity and ability to say no. Because when you are tempted, what does he promise? He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I love that. And I'm, I've used this verse. I'm telling you, God, where's the way out? Where's the door? You promise me a door. You promise me a way out. You promise me that there's some way else than going down this road. Where is it? Show it to me. Give me the strength to choose it. Whenever you feel an appetite rearing up and you're wanting to give in to the temptation, you need to look for God's promised way out. And I'll just tell you, um, in 22 years as a pastor, I have personally known eight people. In 22 years as a pastor, eight people, five of them pastors, and three of them um, that were staff members at churches that have lost their careers for a bowl of stew. Five of them were affairs. Three of them were embezzling money from the church. I personally know, I've only been at three churches. Eight people I personally know that have given up their future, lost their future for a bowl of stew. And my prayer is that you would never be added to that list of people that gave up the future that God has for you for a bowl of stew. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you tell us so clearly in Scripture that you not only want to be our Lord and our Savior, but you want to help us every single day of our lives avoid the pitfalls and the temptations that get thrown our way. And so, Lord, I pray right now for those of us in the room that maybe today is their day to invite you into their life. And they want to have the power to resist the appetites that war within them. And, Lord, I, I, if that's you right now in the room, I just want to encourage you to invite Jesus into your life. All you have to do is invite him in. Ask him for forgiveness. And let him know that you believe in him. And he says not only will he show up, but he will bring the power of the Holy Spirit into your life. You can do that today. You can do that right now. And Lord, there are others of us in the room right now. And we've already given in to the temptation. We've already given in to the appetite. And maybe nobody knows. Lord, but we know you know. And so, God, one of the things you tell us in Scripture is that you don't take the consequences away from us very often. But you always offer grace. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that has already given in to the appetite, has already traded their future for a bowl of stew, and, Lord, I pray that you would just bring grace and flood their heart with grace, the reality that you still love them and that there's nothing they can do that will make, make you love them less. Lord, I pray that you would bring truth into their life and the light that only comes from you. And I pray that you would bring forgiveness. 
as they experience your grace. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room that are right now wrestling with an appetite, with temptation. We're trying to talk ourselves into it, trying to make it seem right when we know it's not. Lord, I pray right now that you would bring strength and courage to not give in to the appetite, but to listen to you and to know you, to understand that your will and your future is greater than the bowl of stew they're contemplating taking right now and trading for, even if that bowl of stew is a person. Lord, I pray right now that you would just bring a clarity of mind. Help us to see through the fog that our brains are trying to create so that we might choose your path and your way. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room that right now are managing our appetites with your strength. Lord, I pray for increased strength and vision to see the lies and the traps to call things for what they are. It's just a bowl of stew that promises something it can never deliver. Lord, help us to hold on to what you've already given to us and the blessings that we already have in hand. And help us to stay strong as future temptations come our way as they will. And Lord, in all of that, we will praise you. Whether we're doing okay with our appetites right now or we're contemplating trading our future for a bowl of stew or we already have. Lord, we will praise you because you love us, you care about us, and you've given us um, ample information in your word to know how to live our life your way. In your holy name, amen. Well, we would like to close our service and just spend a few moments praising God and singing to him. And um, I want to also just take the next few moments and allow some of you to just do business with God. If God's just kind of tapping on your heart and you need to do some work with him, do that over the next few minutes as we just kind of create a, a holy place within this gym that God can kind of break through into reality and speak to each one of us. So would you please stand with me and I'm going to turn it over to the band to lead us for the next few minutes.